0: world war ii it's known as the greatest generation and these are their stories it's the world war ii project this is the americhicks with your host kim
1: munson
2: hey welcome to the world war ii project i'm kim munson i am thrilled to have in studio with me my good friend and that is kim kimball kim it's just great to have you in studio
1: Thanks, it's good to be here.
2: So we want to hear your story. I know that we've talked about it before, but I think it's time to hear it again. So tell us, uh, where did you grow up?
1: Well, uh, first let me uh, uh, give you a disclaimer. At my age, uh, memory sometimes uh, plays tricks on you, so... If I take a little poetic license with the truth occasionally, it's because of bad memory and nothing else. <laughs>
2: nothing else. Okay. Okay. Well, now that we have the disclaimer out there, that's great. Well, you know, the
1: battles get a little more fierce every year, yeah. and girls get prettier. and <laughs>
2: That's how it works. Huh? Okay, great. Well, Kim Kimball, where did you grow up? Where did I, it all start?
1: Uh, I was born. I grew up in Oklahoma. I um, joined the Navy uh, in 1944. When I was just barely 17, and uh, I spent uh, three years in, almost three years, as an enlisted man, a radarman. I worked my way up to a, a radarman second class. Um, about 18 months of it on the Hornet, USS Hornet, and uh, the balance in training, and on the USS President Hayes, which was. Uh, an attack troop transport that uh, made most of the landings in the Pacific in World War II. I uh, got discharged in uh, Shoemaker, California, and promptly went started into college at uh, Oklahoma a and University then. It's now called Oklahoma State. And I uh, put four years in there, graduated with a degree in electrical engineering, uh, went to work for a company called Alice Chalmers, which was— one of the 40th largest in the world at that time. And uh, in the meantime, I got a commission in the uh, Reserve Officer Candidate School and got recalled in the Korean War and spent uh, about another three years in as engineering officer on destroyer escorts. So all in all, I put in uh, close to six years active duty and about 21 in the reserve.
2: Well, thank you for all that service. Thank you. I really, really appreciate that. You know, somebody said to me the other day that we uh, sit in the shade because somebody else planted a tree, and I was thinking about you guys, and that is is that I live in freedom because other people were able to put their lives on. I mean, they were willing to put their lives on the line for us and uh, greatly, greatly appreciate it. So how did you get in to the Navy in 1944 when you just were 17 years old? How did that happen?
1: Well, they were taking 17-year-olds then, and my father uh, was in World War One, and he uh, he okayed signed up uh, okayed it. I had to get his approval to go in, and I didn't uh, I didn't graduate from from high school. In fact, I didn't go to senior year because. Uh, all the young men were going to war, and it was so popular. And the superintendent of the little school I went to uh, said that any boy who wanted to join, uh, before he graduated, he would see that we got a degree. So we did, and I was very ill-prepared to go to college. I really struggled the first year because I missed all that senior year,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: algebra and chemistry and whatever they were teaching back then.
2: Mm -hmm. So, uh, but you... Well, and where did you fall in your family, um, siblings?
1: Uh, I, I have one sister. She's two and a half years younger than I am. Okay. And still in good health.
2: Great. So you're 17 years old, what did your mom think about you going into the, the Navy?
1: She wasn't very happy. I bet she wasn't.
2: I bet she wasn't very happy with your dad either,
1: huh? No. In fact, I think he sang Strangers in the Night for quite a while after <laughs> <Did he>?
2: that. <laughs> did he? I bet. I bet he did. But you're 17 years old, and why the Navy? A Oklahoma kid, why the Navy?
1: I I was always fascinated with ships and the ocean. I'd never seen the ocean, but I just had a, a passion for, oh, from the time I was, I guess, nine or eight years old to uh, go in the Navy.
2: And uh, once you're in the Navy, what happened? Where did you go for basic training?
1: Uh, San Diego. Uh, that was my first time really away from home, uh, so a bunch of us, there must have been 50 or 60 Oklahoma uh, Clodhopper kids, uh, they heard of us on a train, and we were three days uh, traveling from Oklahoma City to San Diego, and I'll never forget the first view of the ocean. It was from the train tracks going from L.A. down to uh, San Diego, and it just took our breath away. We couldn't believe it. And I uh, went through boot camp there, which was, uh, I thought, pretty interesting. A lot of kids didn't like it, but I'm a great believer in some kind of uh, military training or government service. In fact, if I was president, every kid in the country, boy or girl, would do at least two years of some kind of government service, uh, Peace Corps or military. But... And why is
2: that? Why? Why do you think that's important? Well, yeah.
1: today we're not teaching uh, discipline. We're not teaching respect. Uh, we're we're uh, giving everybody an idea of hey, why do you have to work? Well, you can go on welfare and make six thousand a month. Mm-hmm. And the military and and the other services will teach you that uh, cooperation is one of the greatest factors that we have going and. Everybody's got to have a boss, and so many kids today don't know there is such a thing as a Mm -hmm, boss. mm -hmm. So I think it was uh, very good training, and it molded me uh, in a lot of ways that I'd never had before.
2: Okay, anything in particular you'd like to share about boot camp?
1: Uh, To me, it was fun. It was uh, physical. Uh, It was in the best shape physically of my life because we did a lot of calisthenics and it was learning technical, uh, even for a, a low class seaman second. You learned uh, how a steam plant worked, and you learned uh, sailor jargon and uh, the basics of uh, being a, a boatswain or a, a, a sailor. And it was it was an awful lot of fun. Besides, you were with a lot of, of other guys that were pretty well attuned to what you were, and you made a lot of friends. Uh-huh.
2: That reminds me, I don't know if I can pull this joke up in my mind, but you know, I'm from Kansas, so you know, hard working people I say that we uh we work as a hobby. And and so here you guys are from Oklahoma and you're at boot at boot camp and you're the first guy that said it's a lot of fun reminds me of the letter that somebody sent home regarding boot camp that we get up at five and we do the you know, calisthenics and we work all day and it's kinda like a vacation. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you're absolutely right. And I uh I've always had respect for people from Oklahoma, uh, Nebraska, Kansas, the Dakotas, the Midwest. It seems like those are the only people left anymore that you can shake hands with and you've got a contract. Mm-hmm. You don't need to sign anything. Mm-hmm. It'll get done.
2: Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Yeah, salt of the earth. I, I, uh, I totally agree on that. So boot camp, you're done with boot camp. What happens after that, Kim Kimball?
1: I got assigned to a radar school on Point Loma. And San Diego—it's a beautiful spit that goes uh, out alongside the entrance to San Diego Harbor—and I spent, uh, I think, it was four or five months there learning how to operate the early radar we had at that time, which was uh, uh, just just in the beginning. The radar is so much more sophisticated today, but we were able to. Uh, pick up enemy planes uh, up to 400 miles out on some good days. And uh, uh, it, so these machines were so large, it took three people to operate one from a console.
2: So, and uh, that was just, as radar was starting to develop, was right. near the end of World War II. Yeah. Did, we, did this give us um, a leg up on the Japanese?
1: Oh, tremendously. Uh, ja- the Japanese had nothing like it in the beginning. And we were able to spot them uh, at night uh, and pinpoint their location with within a hundred feet or so, uh, and they didn't even know we were coming mm-hmm. half the time. So it uh, it was one of the big things I think that helped us win the war was, you know, we didn't invent it. The British actually invented it, and we uh, we took it and and uh, improved it a great deal. Mm-hmm. But we were able to at the last. To get a radar that would give us altitude determining, we could tell how high a plane was when Mm -hmm. it was coming in. Mm -hmm. And that made a big difference in uh, the fighters when they went out to see if if they couldn't uh, do a little damage Mm -hmm. to the Zeros.
2: And... And and that probably really was an important component. Now, are we getting near the end of the war in the Pacific, or tell me exactly where we are there?
1: We were pretty close to the end. Um the, the, major, the major battles were the uh, Battle of Midway and uh, the Battle of the Coral Sea. Those were some of the big battles that... Uh, that proved the the aircraft carrier was uh, here to stay. The battleship was absolutely, well, not not totally useless, but it was regulated to a minor shore bombardment capacity. And that's one mistake the Japanese made. They put a lot of their resources into battleships, which turned out to be totally useless in trying to fight a bunch of airplanes. Mm-hmm. So it was long toward the end uh, The liberation of Guam, uh, the uh, Taipan, uh, uh, Saipan, Tinian, uh, were some of the last islands that uh, that we took. And uh, after the uh, after the war, we were actually in San Francisco uh, when VJ Day was occurred. we had taken, uh, we went through a terrible typhoon, a third fleet did. In fact, uh, we lost, I think, four destroyers because they were, uh, they were low on fuel and they had not ballasted with salt water in the fuel tanks, so they rode very high in the water and it made them very unstable. And when they hit these 30 and 40 and 60-foot waves, uh, four of them, I believe, actually capsized and were lost. We took water over the hangar deck, which is 60 foot off the ocean, Mm -hmm. and it stove in the first uh, 50 foot of our hangar deck, and we had to go back to, well, Pearl Harbor didn't have a a place to repair us, so we had to go back to San Francisco to Hunter's Point for repairs, and we were there uh, loading for the Japanese invasion, and we loaded uh, week after week of a tremendous amount of supplies and bringing the air group on board. And, and was this uh, on
2: a carrier at that time? Hmm? Was this, this on a carrier or? Yeah, okay. on the carrier. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, on VJ Day, uh, I was a third class, officer and I, uh, I unfortunately caught shore patrol duty. They, they're, they're, everybody was going to have such a big party that a lot of us were conscripted into becoming shore patrol. And uh, they told us, they said, don't bother anybody unless it's obvious rape or murder. (laughs) (laughs) It was uh, quite a show. I'll never forget it. It was a lot of happy people.
2: Yeah. So let's go back just a little bit, though. I want to hear more about this typhoon um, because I hadn't really thought about it. I've learned so much in talking with you guys as World War II veterans that uh that there were decisions to go through typhoons, and hadn't really thought about just how dangerous that was this these ships that were capsized i mean the guys were lost or did you
1: yeah, were they, they were a lot of them uh, a lot of them were rescued, but we lost an awful lot of them because it was uh it was really a mistake on the captain's part uh it was his decision as to whether when you ballast a fuel tank with salt water you uh you give the ship much more stability Mm -hmm. and it's able to take uh, waves and to to roll much more than it would be if you were, uh, had a very high center of gravity and you're floating Mm -hmm. on top. And the captain has to make a decision, do I want to take the risk? Because if I put salt water in the fuel tanks, they have to be uh, completely cleaned. And that's quite a job. Mm -hmm. It takes uh, steam and Uh, hot water, and it's a really messy, terrible job before uh, you can put fuel back in them because you don't dare send salt water to your boilers. Mm -hmm. So they made the decision uh, based, I guess, on, I don't know, on the weather report that it wouldn't be as bad as it was, but Mm -hmm. it caught a lot of them uh, in a situation where they just couldn't get out of Mm -hmm.
2: And what, it's just waves and wind and Waves
1: water. and wind, very, very high waves. Up to, well, we we took waves over the hangar deck, over the flight deck, which we were 60 foot off the water. And that was when the nose would dip down. But the carrier uh, then was a huge ship. Today it's like a rowboat compared to modern carriers. Mm-hmm. We had about 3,000 people on board, and today's carriers hold 5,000 or more. Mm-hmm. But they're made in sections, actually. Ours was made in three sections, and they had expansion joints. And when you stand in the back of the hangar deck uh, and look forward when you're going into uh, high seas, you could see the uh, the front part move up and down, and then the middle part move up and down, and then you'd feel it on the, the oh, back man. part. And uh, it was designed that way to help take care of, of heavy seas,
2: okay. So, not, never went through your mind that it might break apart. Then,
1: oh, I, I was never going to die at that time. Yeah, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that, that's right, and
2: that's, and that's a good thing. That is a good thing. Let's go back just a little bit. You mentioned Midway and Coral Sea. Now, that was probably you were probably just what twelve or thirteen. Well, a, lot
1: those battles of, where, a lot of battles were a lot of. Of the uh, action that the carriers saw, all the carriers, uh, whenever they'd make a landing or go in support of a landing on an island or or someplace, the carriers were usually 10 to 30 miles offshore and they let the aircraft do the fighting for them. Mm -hmm. The aircraft would take off and go in and bomb and strafe and whatever, come back, land, refuel and go back out. So uh, they didn't see an awful lot of uh, of battle damage from destroyers and cruisers of the enemy. There were some, uh, some of the uh, big battles mm-hmm. they did, yeah, where everybody messed it up with mm-hmm. all types of ships. But for the most part, the carriers uh, were not close to uh, a real battle scene, not like uh, if you're on an LST or a troop mm-hmm. transport where you're a mile or so off and... Everybody's shooting at you. Mm
2: hmm. Okay, so, well, you know what, Kim? Let's go to break. This is Kim Munson. I'm talking with Kim Kimball, World War II veteran. He obviously served on the USS Hornet and learning about his experience in the Pacific Theater in World War II. So we will be right back. Welcome back to the World War II Project. I'm Kim Munson. I'm talking with Kim Kimball, my friend, a World War II veteran. Uh, and talked about how you got into the Navy in 1944. You were just barely 17 years old. Your father signed for you to get in. He was World War II, World War One veteran. Uh, but you're now in the Pacific, and we've been talking a bit about uh, you've gone through a typhoon. I wanted to go back a little bit to these aircraft carriers and just what a an interesting phenomenon it is because you know many of us if we've been out to california maybe we've you know toured an aircraft carrier and uh the, the aircraft carriers of world war ii were much smaller than what we see today so it was quite a feat to be sending these these this aircraft off and then seeing them come back first of all what was it like when you saw these uh these planes going off to battle
1: well uh first of all we didn't have jets we uh we were before the jet age they came into uh, service after the war uh, we had sp2c's which were a uh, a dive bomber uh we had tbm's which was also a dive bomber that's one the that president uh uh one president flew he was in world war 2 the first uh well, i can't think of his name right now the president bush bush yeah okay first President Bush flew one. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had uh, F-4Us, which were the gull wing, and to my my thinking, the most beautiful airplane that was ever built. It's a gull wing fighter and was an excellent, excellent uh, airplane. And we had F-6Fs and F-4Fs, which were Drummond's. uh, They were more like a, a... Eight machine guns and a seat and a big engine. They were, they were small, but mm-hmm. they were deadly, and they could stand up to the zeros pretty well. Mm-hmm. And then we had some other auxiliary type aircraft, but these were all engine driven. Uh, how, how many
2: guys on those? If you had eight machine guns, how many guys on?
1: Usually, uh, the fighters just one, but with um, the SP2Cs, had two. They had a gunner and uh, a bombardier and a pilot uh I think the f the one that Bush flew was just uh just one man okay most of them were one one pilot, and that was it
2: so you have to fly in fly and
1: shoot. shoot and bomb and everything else, yeah. try to get out of the way yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it was it was really exciting again for a seventeen year old because um uh, the aircraft landing was not as perfected as it is today. We had, for example, a straight flight deck, and now they're all cantered. So um, whenever a plane comes in and when you're landing uh, a lot in a big hurry, which sometimes you had to do, they would uh, stack them on the front of the ship on the flight deck. And the planes coming in uh, for landings to the rear of the ship, if they didn't make a proper landing or catch a cable Mm-hmm. Uh, they ran the danger of running right into those, which could, could cause a, r- a real catastrophe. Mm-hmm. But now with the Canada decks they're off to the side when they land. So if they miss a miss a cable or don't land right, they just go on around and come around again.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a lot safer now. It's not much fun still, but it's a lot safer now than than it was back then. And the cables were about six inches. Off the deck, uh, they could be raised by uh, some levers when a plane was coming in. And they were small enough, low enough to the deck, that the wheels would run over them, but the cable hook on the rear of the plane would hopefully catch one of them. And if it didn't catch, and there was a lot of times it didn't, they had three big barriers that they raised. And these were, um, these stretched all the way across the uh, flight deck. And they were uh, inch-thick steel cables, two of them. And the plane would run into those to stop to keep it from going into the park planes in front. So uh, that would tear up the plane pretty good. And most of the propellers then were uh, large, 8 to 10 foot in diameter with uh, laminations. So they would splinter and shrapnel would just fly all over the deck. Yeah. Usually, they wouldn't let you on the deck when a plane was coming in for a landing. Yeah. You had to stay, uh, stay down below or if you were in the island. At that point, I worked in what was called a CIC, Combat Information Center, where all the, uh, all the radar was located and where we vectored the planes out for uh, uh, their runs on islands or to fight and took care of incoming enemy planes. And it was very very active, a fairly small room with about forty people in it, and all of them bent over uh, scopes and radar scopes and charts and graphs, and again, extremely exciting for a seventeen year old. But that was located in the island, which is the uh, part, uh, part of the ship on the side where the bridge is located, where they con the ship from. And so I got to see a lot of the action of landing and takeoff because we could step outside, we were on the third deck up, and we had a real good view of the flight deck
0: mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. going back to early in world war II, uh jimmy doolittle they they took what b twenty fives off b
1: twenty fives off the first hornet yeah. yeah
2: off the first hornet
1: yeah that was the that was the hornet that was sunk, in, I think it was the Battle of Coral Sea. And uh, the ship I was on was originally going to be named the Cursage, and she was just about to be launched when uh, the first hornet was sunk, and they, in tribute to the first hornet, they turned around and named this one the hornet, too. Okay.
2: Okay. I'm I'm trying to think of the quote of Admiral Nimitz, that how are ships like women and it takes a lot of time to keep him in paint and makeup or something like that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, he that an Admiral Tojo. He, he said, uh, after they bombed Pearl Harbor, uh, I'll never forget his famous quote, because all of his officers were laughing and drinking sake, and, and uh, they asked him how he felt. He said, I don't think it's a victory. I think we've just awakened a sleeping giant. Yeah. I and remember him. He was us. so right. <laughs> he was
2: absolutely so right. And we were lucky at Pearl Harbor. Yes, we were. Because the aircraft carriers, most of them were out they of were sea. They were out of right sea, again. right,
1: every one of them. It's just yeah. the big battleships and the cruisers that hit the most of it there. Yeah.
2: So, okay, so you're a young, young 17-year-old kid. You're on the USS Hornet. Um, you know, what? some of the stories of the Hornet?
1: Tell us <laughs> about that. Well, um, there, there's... I, have, I try to remember the good things, uh, things that were funny. And I remember uh, I had to sit as a telephone talker on the bridge. And we had communications uh, by speakerphone to and from the CIC to the bridge. But we also had a telephone talker up there as a backup just in case you needed communications and, and your other electronic communication got shot away. So we had to periodically serve as a, as a, a messenger or, or telephone talker. And I remember uh, two cases. One was that we had a young, after I'd been on board maybe three or four months and was a seasoned sailor, we had a young boot that was serving as a messenger, and they decided to play a trick on him. It was on a night watch, so they they told him, the junior officer said, go down to the music locker and bring us the F key to the bugle. <laughs> and <laughs> he didn't know. He took off for the music locker, and he got down there, and they told him, well, it's way back on the fantail. you got to go to this other place. And they kept the poor guy running for an hour before he found out he was getting his chain jerked.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I remember after... Uh, B.J. Day hit, we uh, we spent another three weeks offloading all these supplies, a lot of them that we had loaded on board. We offloaded all the airplanes and all the air group, and they welded 8,000 bunks on the hangar deck and went down to a skeleton crew. Normally we had 3,000 in the crew. We were down to about 600 in the skeleton crew. And we turned the unused bunks on the ship and these new bunks they had welded on the uh, hangar deck into a troop transport. And uh, we made uh, five trips to and from uh, various islands uh, back to Seattle or San Francisco uh, bringing troops back. We brought back about 12,000 at a time. And those bunks were eight high, and uh, they didn't have anything to do all day. They would sit around and play cards, They got two meals a day, and uh, they uh, uh, were—I was amazed because with all the boredom, and it was a good three-week trip, I never heard one complaint, not one. They were so happy to be going home. But uh, whenever we'd make a trip out, it was uh, really boring because there was only a few of us on board and we didn't have much to do, and morale was not as high as it should be. And we left uh, Seattle one, one day. We left on uh, December 23rd to go back. We had to spend Christmas on the way out, and everybody was, uh, well, anyway, they weren't exactly happy. But the skipper at that time was was a man named C.R. Brown. He became... Admiral, I believe, of the Mediterranean fleet afterwards, and he had a good sense of humor i was uh, in port. I was a jeep driver, we had six jeeps on board, and we had six drivers, and they were there to take the officers and the various chiefs around to get supplies and uh to and from the airports when they were when the pilots were getting our training in. Well, I drove the captain around quite a bit, and he uh he was a nice guy but uh, one trip going out on the bridge, they were on the bridge at night and um, the uh, junior officer of the deck got a phone call uh, and he kind of looked puzzled and he said, where? And he hung up the phone and he turned to the officer deck and he said, uh, that was a funny call, uh, the guy just said, uh, the Phantom Pooper. Strikes again, and I'm using poop as a little bit of an acronym here. And uh, he said, right outside the captain's door. And sure enough, they sent a Marine down, and and here was a little paper sack full of, uh, full of something that shouldn't have been there. And, of course, the word got out on the grapevine uh, immediately. But the next morning, everybody wanted to know who the Phantom Pooper was. <laughs> And every night after that, for a week or so, he would uh, leave a little bag of remembrance at some part of the ship and call the bridge. And they never did find out who he was, but it really improved the morale of the ship. And I often thought in some of my discussions with uh, when I was driving Brown around that he actually put the people up to doing that mm-hmm. just to, to improve the morale. But it did.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you think the captain was behind the it gave us something to
1: focus on
2: (laughs) (laughs) other than being bored (laughs) what about Kim Kimball bringing these guys back you said it's a three week trip not one of them complained I mean they were pretty battle worn by that time weren't they?
1: A lot of them were yeah a lot of them we picked up off of Guam we pulled into uh, Guam about three days after uh, after it was secured and it was uh it was pretty bad. It, uh, they, there were some, like 15,000, I think, Japanese troops had committed suicide, by jumping off the cliffs or or killed by our advancing forces, and they were just laying around and uh, three days in Guam laying around, and it gets pretty bad. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of strange. They uh, they finally buried them all in an open pit grave. I didn't uh, get off the ship at that time, but. Uh, uh years ago, in fact, oh, it's only been about 15 years ago. I, I'm an engineer, and I, I went over to Guam to put on a, a flow meter school for the Guam Power Authority and the Navy base. And I went back out to the base one day just to look around, and uh, I went in the officer's club to have a beer, it was, and I was sitting there talking to the bartender, and I'd driven by uh, the graveyard for these Japanese... Uh, soldiers and they had turned it into a golf course Hmm. and i told him i said i thought i don't why did you guys do that seems a little sacrilegious and not very uh not a very good thing to do and the bartender laughed and he said well we about 15 years ago the japanese came over and dug them all up and took them back to japan Oh, okay so they respected their dead just Uh as we as we did
2: yeah well so, Guam, um, were you, refresh my listeners' memories, then, how those battles went. There was Guam, and then what was after that?
1: Uh, gosh, I, uh, my memory is hazy, too. Uh,
2: was there, like, Tinian and Saipan? I'm, well, Tinian, they
1: were all uh, grouped together there. They're mm-hmm. all in the Marianas, mm-hmm. and uh, there were one right after another. We made a couple of trips to Saipan and Tinian, bringing back troops, and mm-hmm. There were still a lot of uh, of Japanese in the jungles that hadn't given up, and mm-hmm. they, we were warned not to go, uh, not to go off the roads at all, not even ten foot into the jungle. We risk getting shot because there were so many, so many holdouts that wouldn't believe that Japan had surrendered.
2: Mm-hmm. What about Okinawa? Where were you for the Battle of Okinawa?
1: No, I wasn't in that, but I remember um, on uh, Guam. When we pulled in there, we, we, uh, we, we had a lot of beer on board. It was, uh, it was Ballantine's Ale. And uh, we couldn't drink on the ship. But the skipper, we were there one Sunday, anchored off. And this was on Tinian, I guess, or Saipan. Uh, the skipper had a barge pulled up alongside the ship. And he declared that an island. And he moved the beer off onto the barge and let us off on the barge, you know, a third of the ship at a time or whatever it would hold. We got we got two or three beers, and they were all flat. <laughs> no carbonation, but we didn't care. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and that was on that island that was right next that to That was me. the
1: island that he created uh, yeah. so that we could legally do that. And then uh, we had lost a Jeep, uh, one of our Jeep drivers, I don't know, he didn't, didn't tie down his Jeep right, and it rolled overboard. So uh, a crew went aboard one night to the officers' club on Guam and liberated a Jeep from the parking lot. Oh, did they? And <laughs> drove it back and loaded it on a uh, an LCVP that they had commandeered and hauled it out to the ship. And four hours later, they had it repainted, new uh, new stripes on it, new license numbers. It became a part of the ship's company. <laughs>
2: yeah. Did anything ever happen?
1: No, nothing ever happened. We, uh, I often wonder what those officers must have thought when they couldn't find their jeep. <laughs> oh my gosh!
2: You know, you've you've touched on a couple of things there that that I think would be key for maybe our, our listeners. And actually, it's interesting, Kim, I'm trying to think who I was talking to. Oh, one of my sponsors, uh, Karen Levine, who is a sponsor of this show. She's with REMAX Alliance. Uh, another thing that she does is she teaches uh, teaches kids at her church. And uh, many of them, I guess, are listening to the show to learn their history about World War II. So that just absolutely... Warms my heart, <laughs> but uh, you mentioned when we talk about the Phantom Pooper, and also about this uh, this island that's been created, it starts to make me think about leadership and morale. And so you've been around a lot of different uh, folks, uh, rega- you know, in your experiences on that. So we're going to go to break. When we come back, uh, I'd like to hear what you have to say about good leadership because you certainly have probably seen that in your experience in the Navy. <laughs> Welcome back to the World War II Project with Kim Munson. I am talking with World War II and Korean War veteran Kim Kimball. And before we went to break, Kim, you you worked with some, it sounds like some guys that uh, were really leaders. Uh, what would you tell our listeners about what you think makes a good leader?
1: Well, I think first... Uh first of all uh, he has to uh, gain the respect of uh, the people he's trying to lead and uh, he do, i i think you do that mostly by letting those folks know that uh, you really care about them you're not just there to to uh, uh show some shiny bars and strut around uh, you really are are interested in their lives and uh, and what they want to do, and in helping them with their uh, careers and training them, uh, I knew a lot of officers that were wonderful leaders. I've known some that were uh, pretty poor, mm-hmm. but most of them were on a uh, first name basis with uh, uh, the enlisted men. They they uh, they led, and even uh, when 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 you were off duty and off the ship, uh, you weren't formal. Uh, uh, you could drink beer together and tell jokes together, and you become uh, more or less one of the group. Mm -hmm. But, uh, again, gaining the respect of the people you work for. And and you can only do that if you can make good decisions. If you make bad ones, uh, Mm -hmm. it's not only bad for you, it's bad for them. And a lot of officers made a lot of bad decisions, but thank goodness we made more good decisions than bad.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I I've heard from many of the guys that served with Patton is that that he they felt that he would not ask them to do anything that he wouldn't do.
1: Exactly. Yeah, he uh, he felt that way, and I think all of his men, and he had literally hundreds of thousands of under him, felt pretty much the same way when they'd see him. Out there in the mud, knee deep in the mud, directing traffic at a crossroads in France, a general, and he did that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That that gained him an awful lot of respect, uh-huh. and he was actually a, one of the most brilliant generals I think that we've ever produced. He was a, he was a, a pretty much a, said what he thought, and it got him in trouble a lot of time. But he got a lot of things done. Uh-huh. He's sort of like a president we got today. <laughs>
2: You always know where they stand. <laughs> yeah. You know, that reminds me a story that I heard about George Washington that uh, some, uh, some guys were trying to get, I think, a log up, you know, onto an armament or, or a barrier or something. And, and there was a, a commanding officer that continued to encourage them to push, to push, to push. And uh, I guess Washington had his cloak on and he gets off his horse and he helps them. They needed just one more man to push it up. And uh, he looked at the officer, and he said, well, why didn't you do that? And he said, well, I'm an officer, and and Washington takes off his cloak, and he says, well, I'm the general. And uh, so, you know, I, I think that, that uh,
1: <laughs> that's a good example. Yeah,
2: it's a good example. Yeah. Uh, in your life, uh, you, you probably have come across a lot of, as you mentioned, good leaders and bad leaders uh, or not so good leaders. And I think sometimes you also learn from some of the guys that, are not great leaders. I think you can learn from that as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can.
2: Any other stories from World War II before we we go on and talk what, about what you did during the Korean War?
1: Not not that. Uh, oh, not particularly to think about or talk about. Mm-hmm. It was, there was a lot of boredom. There always is, and and when you're in the service, no matter what service you're in, and there were some memorable moments. But uh, I think VJ Day was one of my biggest memories. Uh, to see the joy in this uh, country, uh, and I, uh, uh, I remember a lot of uh, vivid memories of uh, crashes on the planes coming in for landing, and uh, luckily we, we never lost a pilot when I was on board, but we went we went through a lot of crashes. We had the first uh, group of F8F. Fighters. These were Grumman fighters, and they didn't see any combat. They came on the scene after, uh, just at the end of the war, and they were much more powerful than the F 6F. They were a huge, huge engine. And um,
2: Again, they were still prop?
1: They were prop planes, yeah. yeah okay. We didn't have any jets at all. Yeah. But we got the first squadron of eight. Um, uh, we were off San Francisco, and they came in for their very first carrier landings. They'd been making carrier landings, practiced on uh, land, but out of the twelve, in the uh, there was twelve, not eight. Eight of them went into the barriers. They were so hot to land. It just, and they had not really, uh, the pilots hadn't really gained the complete control of what was happening to the plane when they came in. And I'll never forget that day because it was just shrapnel everywhere. We didn't hurt anybody. We we sure tore up a lot of government equipment. But
2: so eight of them crashed out of 12 in eight one day?
1: Of them, eight of them crashed into the barriers on the first... Uh, they missed the tail hooks. And I think they probably did some design changes after that. You think?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would think so. But but you said, fortunately, you never lost a pilot. I mean, that's that's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, it is. It, uh, considering... Uh, uh, considering some of the crises they went through,
0: mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. so after uh, VJ Day, uh, then you went back to college. Is is that after your timeline? I,
1: after I spent, well, I spent, I got off the Hornet uh, because after we did our Magic Carpet runs, it was this was called the Magic Carpet Fleet, bringing all these troops back. Uh, they were going to put the put the uh, Hornet out of commission. And uh, they said we're going to assign you guys that were radarmen. We're going to put you down, and you'll be chipping villages uh, to get painted, to get it cleaned up for uh, uh, for decommissioning. And I thought, well, I, I don't particularly want to do that. So <laughs> I tried to. I wanted to see the atomic bomb go off. I had a real desire. And this was the time when Operation Bikini was. Uh, that's when they dropped all those. A-bombs in in the harbor at Bikini uh, back uh, when they were allowed to do testing. And we actually dropped, I think, the first hydrogen bomb there. Okay. And I wanted to see that. So I signed up for Operation Bikini, and they put me on the President Hayes, which uh, at that time they had turned into a supply ship taking uh, supplies to and from Bikini. And taking personnel to and from Hawaii, it's a stop we'd make. So we had, we made a number of runs out there uh, in on in that duty, and that was again a skeleton crew. We only had uh, four men in the radar section, which meant that uh, you were just one man operating all the radars for a four-hour stint. And uh, and was the haze
2: also? A uh, aircraft
1: carrier, no Hayes was a troop transport they'd converted into a supply transport, okay, and uh, it was a former luxury liner, a lure line, I think, and it had staterooms, so we were lucky there uh, when we go out and there were no troops on board, we all had a stateroom, and that was unheard of, sure for a listed man and then we took a lot of nurses and we took uh, military families out and back, but I never did get to see a bomb go off. we were always a a day away when they dropped one. <laughs> mm.
2: huh. Now, you're the first person that I've talked to that have said, A, that they wanted to see an atomic bomb go off, and B, <laughs> that um, they actually got close to one.
1: Yeah, we uh, were pretty close, but uh, we we still were too far away. Too far away <laughs> to do that,
2: okay. Okay, well, that is, that's fascinating, Kim. So after this, then what happened? I went to you're college,
1: right. and I got... Out of the service and immediately roll, enrolled in college uh, with this uh, Fox high school diploma I had, mm-hmm.
0: <laughs>
1: which was acceptable. And the first year was uh, was pretty rough. Uh, I remember it because I just didn't have the uh, prerequisites to uh, really go to college. But after that, it became pretty easy, and I uh, I went four years. And then went to work for uh, for Alice Chalmers and was with them for over 20 years.
2: Mm-hmm. During the Korean War, what did you do then?
1: The Korean War, I, like in college, I got a commission. I stayed in the reserve and, and wanted to go ahead and get my commission. So I got a commission as an ensign. And as soon as I went to work for Alice Chalmers, I immediately got recalled to uh, duty in the Korean War. And... Uh, I was assigned to the USS Lanning, which uh, was a destroyer escort hull, but they had converted it into a high-speed attack transport. Uh, we carried frogmen, which were now we'd call them SEAL teams, but we carried uh, about uh, 70 or 80 frogmen, and our job was to... Uh, go into a beach and drop them off in rubber boats and let them go in and blow up things, and, and then we'd make a run back down the beach at a pre, pre-assigned time and pick them up uh, from their rubber ass. And I got transferred uh, after about a year to the USS Cronin, which was a, a destroyer escort control, and uh, its job was to, uh, whenever you had an invasion of an island, you had a thing called an LOD, a line of departure. And this was where the, uh, the landing boats would line up in a line formation a mile or two from the, from the beach. And uh, on signal, all of them would go in at once. You wanted all of them to hit so it, uh, the enemy would uh, see a, wa- a wall of fire there instead of just one or two ships. And the control destroyer escort sat on the end of that line and got everybody lined up and gave the order to go ahead. And it was not a very uh, pleasant place to be because you're anchored out there all alone and mm-hmm. and a perfect target for any, anybody to shoot at you. Luckily, we didn't have any of that because uh, the landings in Korea were, uh, were not like the ones in the Pacific. They weren't near as drastic. And... Uh, it's kind of interesting that Cronin was named after uh, a helmsman uh I think it was on the u s s maine, which was admiral dewey's flagship when he uh when he sailed into Manila Bay in the Battle of the philippines in, in before World War one and you know the famous flo- his famous slogan was Damn the torpedoes full speed ahead mm-hmm. Well, the Cronin family uh, donated a silver tea service to the wardroom, and we met some of them, and one of the the Cronins was a a very jovial man, and he said, that's not what Admiral Dewey said. What uh, what we were told by the helmsman was he said, damn, the torpedoes, full speed ahead.
2: (laughs) The inflection really makes a difference, doesn't it?
1: (laughs) So... Yeah, that uh, that's, uh, you're right. It's how you say it. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, it, so when you were doing this, where were you located then? Uh, on we the... were
1: mostly out of uh, Norfolk, Virginia, and Newport News, and uh, some out of San Francisco.
2: But where were the frogmen making these runs? Where were you dropping them off at?
1: Well, we we really didn't. We never made a a, a landing in the Korean War using frogmen. We did a lot of training with them. Okay out of uh San Diego out of uh, of uh I forgot I forgotten the name of the base now it's uh on North Island okay and it's still the primary uh SEAL team base okay well, they were a rough bunch boy I wouldn't want to tackle with them.
2: Uh, <laughs> I and I think that's still the case it, it is <laughs> yeah. okay and so this primarily during the Korean War, then, it would be training that you...
1: Training and uh, show the flag, and uh, I put her out of commission um, in Green Coast Springs, Florida, when we decommissioned the ship And I think it was 53, at the end of the Korean War. Okay. And we spent uh, three months down there uh, blowing out all the lines and... Uh, uh, drying out the ship and preserving it so it, um, if it ever needed again, it could be recalled very easy. Okay. And there were something like uh, 800 destroyer escorts made during World War II, and about 300 were were tied up down at the Green Coast Springs. And they never called them back to duty. The Cronin now is a, be- a, a reef, a barrier reef uh, sunk off of... Uh, North Carolina for fish, huh. so a lot of them were were sunk for reefs, a lot of them were scrap metal, but uh, i don't think there's well there's only one left, and that's a museum in uh, syracuse new york okay. the u s s slater huh.
2: you know i find I find all this just so fascinating, and I had the opportunity just recently to fly on a b twenty five and Kim, I actually was surprised. I, I, for some reason, I thought that they were long. You know, <laughs> they're teeny. They were made for young, nimble men, and uh, I think that probably the boats were, as well. I mean, you guys, that uh, you, you were flying and and floating things that I find truly amazing.
1: Well, it's so different today. Uh, on the Hornet, I was in a uh, a room that was maybe forty foot by twenty foot, and there were eighty of us slip in there and the bunks were four high and uh, you were continually jabbing your shipmate in the eye with your toe trying to get in and out of a bunk and your lockers were tiny little things and uh, the restrooms were, they didn't have such things as uh, commodes uh, back then they had a trough that continually uh, they, they flushed salt water down it continually and they had seats Mounted on top of the trough, and no petition, so you had no privacy. Uh-huh. Uh, that used to be a favorite trick in the enlisted men's head of uh, lighting a newspaper and getting up at the front end of that trough and dropping it lit, so it would float down.
2: <laughs> the things you did for entertainment—that's <laughs> for sure. So, well, Kim Kimball, this. Thank you. This is just—it's just been a great conversation. And just a quick question. When you see the American flag these days, what goes through your mind?
1: Uh, I, I, uh, I have a great respect for it. I, uh, I think two things that we're ignoring totally are the flag and the Constitution. And uh, we're not going to be back to the country we should be until we start teaching history. And we don't teach it anymore. Japan's trying to rewrite it. They don't even talk about World War II. We have, uh, somebody told me now that a lot of high schools have devoted uh, two or three pages to World War I and World War II in their history books, and that's a crime. It really is. It is. Maybe the uh, maybe the Jewish people were right. They've kept the Holocaust alive because they talk about it every year, and they do something about it. Uh, our young people don't know anything about it today.
2: Well, I think they're hungry for this knowledge, and that's one of the reasons why we do this show is mm-hmm. to, to capture these stories because each story is individual and, and just fascinating. So, Kim Kimball, thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Absolutely. So, this is Kim Munson signing off. Uh, stay tuned, same time, same place next week. And God bless you, and God bless America.
0: Join us next time for the World War
1: II Project. And your host, the Emerit Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.